All right, we're diving into, uh, we, well, we already dove into James last week with the overview, and if you want to get that, it's on Sermon Audio. How you get there, I don't know. It's on the internet somewhere. Now, you go to the website, there should be a link uh, to get on there. If you have any questions, you can ask Theron, and he can get there. But we're diving into chapter one of James, and before I start, just as a kind of a point of reference, uh, James chapter one is, and James, it's, it's always got to be careful when you say this. When I say James 1 is the kind of outline of the whole book of James, but you have to say that about James. You always have to say it very loosely. You can't hold that too tight because James moves through so many different topics. Uh, It is a letter. It is, he's writing. It's a pastoral style letter, and so he moves from topic to topic. Uh, I'll mention it as we walk through uh, things are linked together. Oftentimes, it's a Greek word play, uh, or it's a, it's a move from uh, trials to temptations back to trials. And depending on your translation, you might read temptations, you might read trials, you might read both words in there. It's actually two different words, and I can highlight where they are, uh, and I'll just make sure I use the word that kind of ties the best to it in Greek. But there's a, there's, a, there's a structure to it, but again, it's held loosely. And so the whole book of James, as we mentioned last week, is about being spiritually whole. And what do I mean by that? Is that you're fully committed. It's about having a Christian life of integrity. And a life of integrity, or the word sincerity, is going to come out. And that, that weaves its way uh, through the whole book. Before I get much further, uh, if you get hot, you go back to that machine and you just go to the cool setting. Uh, I'm already hot. So uh, last week I made it cold, way too cold, because I felt very comfortable. But I'm, gonna, I'm relinquishing control of that, and someone else more bold than me can change the thermostat to whatever fits them. Um, so you might need a coat, but I just don't want to be to blame for it. Uh, I can sweat it out like it's a sauna if that's what you want. So either way, we're diving in. This idea of being spiritually whole, this is the essence of James. This is, this is what drives chapter 2. This is where he talks about faith and having the connection that should work, it should show, it should have action. And that's what James is about. And so we're going to be diving into uh, chapter 1, working our way through what would be kind of like the overview. But kind of as an introduction, I wanted to mention this uh, about our world, and I think we would all agree, uh, we live in a world of fakes. If you take any picture you see online, it's been touched up, it's been enhanced, it's been altered in some way, usually drastically, it's been recreated. That person doesn't look like that, that person doesn't resemble that sometimes, and it's all done to depict a desired perception but it does not portray the reality. It, it's a fraud. <clears throat> There's even a trend, and I'm most embarrassed to know this, but I do have a wife and two daughters, so I feel like I'm allowed to know this. But uh, there's even a whole trend in makeup called contouring. Um, yes, yeah, I shouldn't know this. I know. I, I, already was, I was a little embarrassed to write it, but I did. Um, it's done to help emphasize certain components of one's face. But, and Heather showed me this. On, on Facebook and online, there's people who will literally, and I had the word paint, but I took it out because I don't want to be offensive, but they will literally work on their face for hours and end up looking completely different. They will be a different person. And these are people who posted what they really look like, and then they contour their face. And when I say their nose is different, their cheekbones are, everything's different. You would fool me completely. And so we have 
in our world online and in pictures. We have Photoshop, we have TouchUp, we do all these things to look different, uh, to make ourselves be perceived a certain way. And then even in real life, we are going to, in our culture, we're going to change who we are, what we look like, because that's where we are. We're moving uh, to highlighting, to recreate what we are in real life. And what do we get from this? Fakes, counterfeits, not what is real or true. Instead, it's only an attempt to be perceived a certain way. I say all this for one reason. That highlights the shallowness of our society when it comes to faith and religion. There is a desired perception, and time will be spent to portray that picture. James is going to confront any counterfeit of faith. It's going gonna, it's gonna to prod us forward. Do not read James and say, well, here is a works-based salvation. That is not what James is about. James is about prodding us to have a faith that acts, that looks real, that isn't a fraud or a fake. And why is he writing uh, to churches? He's writing to churches because they're not living out their faith, because they're struggling with this concept of being fully committed to being spiritually whole for the Lord. And so there is this desire perception. It's the, the person doing all these things in the church so that it is perceived that they are a certain way. And, and what we're going to do is understand how we can live out truth. And instead of pretending to grow true faith, let's be growing in our faith. And here's the danger of the fake perception. When we are people who put on a show, who contour our faith to look a certain way, but it's not who we really are. Uh, the danger is we start getting numb to a reality that's not, that's not who we are. And what you end up with is churches full of people who don't know Christ as their Savior, but think they do. Because they've seen the contouring and they've gotten involved in the highlighting. And see, James is going to continually confront self-deception as he addresses the issues faced by the dispersed Jewish believers, and really the church outside of Palestine. And you can go to Acts, and when when the church feels a a pressure of persecution in Jerusalem and spreads out, and he is touching into that church right there, and he wants us to self-examine. If James steps on your toes, that was his intent. He wanted to prod the church to think about, to self-examine. This is something Paul talks about in, in uh, Corinthians. He pushes the church to, to think about who they are for real. And remember, James is tied to what Jesus taught in a very, very close way. It's almost a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount ends with what I call the scariest verses in Scripture, Matthew seven, twenty-one through 23, where Jesus said, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Whenever you wrestle with chapter 2 of James, go back to what Jesus said in Matthew 7. What does James say? Do, act, show your faith, live it out. What does Jesus say? That the one who does the will of my Father, that's the one. And this is many will say, to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And I've preached on these verses before. The reality is what they're saying is we preached well, we cast out devils, we we showed a, a, a giftedness and a power of the spiritual world, and we did miracles, 
And these people who haven't done the will of the Father, who aren't truly saved, and then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's a reality and a weight to those words. And James is addressing that in us. Not because we're going to do to earn our salvation, but he's saying, look at what you're doing to see if you really know the Savior. And then to prod those who really do to say maybe they have to get confess sin, deal with sin, and change their behavior when it comes to serving their Lord and Savior, to live holy for Him. And James recognized the potential of missing true salvation in the church and among those who supposedly believed. And so he's in a call for a stringent self-examination. And this is woven through James's basic concern that his leaders stop compromising with worldly values and behavior and give themselves wholly to the Lord. That's why I say being spiritually whole is a full commitment to the Lord. James wants to reveal eternal reality and promote real spiritual growth, all in a context of what the church was facing, which was a host of trials and testing. Woven through all of James is testing and trials, uh, and we're going to talk through those. Uh, what are those trials and testing? Well, some of them are revealed by what he talks about. Poverty is one of them. Persecution, these are obvious components. But James makes sure to not exclude a broader context of trials. And so though he zeroes in on some specific ones, he makes sure in the way he words and, and, the, and the Greek he uses that he lets us know that he's not excluding a broader context of trials. Illnesses, loneliness, bereavement, disappointment, anxiety, depression. He's not breaking out other, he's not saying it's only poverty and persecution and pain, but instead that he zeroes in on some they're facing, but he, he paints a broader context of trials, and he's working within that context, but it's not just a book about trials. It is the, it is the canvas on which this book is painted, if you want to look at it from a picture or art standpoint. It is the fabric, but it's not what the painting is. It just, it is a reality of what is happening in the church. And so James writes to exhort the church to be authentic, to be fully committed believers, to know the assurance of their faith by the fruit produced in their lives, to live a prioritized life for their Savior, undistracted by this world. He writes so they know and understand the truth of being spiritually whole in Christ. And so we're going to begin the introductory chapter with what is classic in a letter, some basic components, and it all begins with him making his connection to them. James chapter 1, 1, and, and uh, I was reading a commentator, he said there's a big mistake we make in a world today is we'll go to a New Testament book, we'll open it up, and we kind of breeze over the introduction. Especially because if you're reading the letters of Paul, and guys, he wrote a lot of, used to write a lot of the New Testament letters, well guess what, it sounds very similar, and so we just kind of gloss over it. And so we have a temptation to do that, which is not healthy or good. It's, it's still the inspired word. And so it says, James, a servant of God and, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, only person in the New Testament to word it that way. So this is a unique greeting right out the gate to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad greeting. And I want us to real some, realize something about James is that he makes, I put no bones or brags. He doesn't display a false humility and he doesn't make big bombastic statements about who he is and to whom he speaks. I want you to know who he is. He's the half-brother of Jesus, the head of the church in Jerusalem. 
You might say the church in Jerusalem, they had more leaders there. There was apostles there. Uh, John MacArthur remarks regarding his leadership in that church, there's no doubt from Acts 21 that there's a plurality of elders there. That's made clear by the group of elders that they talked to, but that did not negate James's primary leadership role, just as equality of apostolic office did not negate Peter's leadership of the twelve. He is risen. He is known to be the head of the church in Jerusalem. He ruled in a, in a group setting, a plurality setting, but in that setting, he was the, the quote-unquote head guy in that grouping. And here, beyond that, he's seen by the risen Savior. Uh, Christ made a point to appear to James personally. 1 Corinthians 15, 7 says, After that, he was seen of James, then of all the apostles. Yet even that was not his connecting point. Notice he doesn't say, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. I'm the head of the church in Jerusalem, first church. I saw Jesus. He came and, and appeared to me specifically when, when he rose from the grave. None of that is listed here. Instead, there is no physical connect. And there actually is no special position. James's qualification to write were not his physical connection and relationship to Jesus. It was his spiritual relationship and role. And that's actually important as he walks in. His credentials are his connection to God the Father and to God the Son, Jesus the Messiah. A connection that is worded this way only here. And actually what he's doing, and, and remember who he's writing to, these are mainly Jewish Christians. And so it's very fascinating that as he relates to being a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's making sure they haven't lost perspective about who Jesus is. He says, I'm the slave of God and of Jesus, showing that he is subservient to God. He is not elevating himself above that. There's no brag there. Yet he serves the Almighty, the sovereign of the universe. In the Old Testament, that is a respected title given to Moses, to David, to other prophets. And so when I say he makes no brags, he doesn't come out and say, I'm related to Jesus, I'm his half-brother. The other apostles weren't. He doesn't say he appeared to me after he rose from the grave, specifically, which Paul references. He doesn't talk about that. But he does talk about the fact that he's a servant of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes no brag and he makes no bones about who he is. There is no pretend humility or pretentious title. Just a clear connect to God and a clear perspective on his exalted view of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And he's making sure they understand the divinity of Jesus Christ, which they should know. But he knows that this letter is going to be read in a church where maybe people are gathered who don't believe. They need to be confronted with this. And so here's a man that doesn't, doesn't go either way. There is no false humility and there's never being fake with James. There is no pretentious pushing of his position, just a straightforward connect to what matters and to what was needed for God's church. Here, again, the Jewish believers dispersed outside of Israel. I put as a question as you start James, as you look at his connection, is our worth equally and eternally grounded? How do we gauge our worth? And then I, I put another word, is our platform who we are in Christ or some other ministry or earthly achievement? And I put ministry on purpose because what James could have claimed was that he was the head of the church in Jerusalem, that when it came to meeting with the elders and James, in other words, he's always named. The other leaders are not typically, he's named. Why? Because there was a recognized that this guy 
is, is taking the charge here, that he's going to take the brunt. Yet that's not brought up. His ministry achievements, what he's accomplished, who he's related to, how he preached last Sunday, that's not all listed there. It's his relationship to Jesus Christ. And as we embark in James and being wholly committed to the Lord, it's going to begin with the right identifying features. What and how do you describe yourself? From what do you get your worth? It's going to be in Christ. When we get to um, right down in chapter 1 on the poverty and riches, the whole idea is to be identified in Christ and not by what you have and what you don't have, but to make sure we're identified by who we believe in and what he has done. Now, many New Testament letters, if you read Paul's letters, and this is, is good that Paul does, is it's what the Holy Spirit inspired him to do. They'll have introductions like this, and they're followed with notes of thanksgiving or blessing offered to God. That's not the case with James. Uh, James is always interested in an economy of words. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't say too much, if that makes sense. So whenever you encounter anything that's longer in James, you, you should be paying attention. That's something you should do when you're studying Scripture. Everything in Scripture is important, but when, when God emphasizes something by repeating it or giving more time and, and energy to it, then it should jump out to our mind. It should be highlighted just as it's being highlighted when it's being written. James doesn't spend any time with a thanksgiving or a blessing or anything else. He jumps right into his exhortation addressing the issue that warrants specific pastoral attention. He's not going to waste any more time. I'm James. I'm a servant of God Almighty, and I'm a servant of God, the Son of God, your Messiah, and then he says, I'm writing to you, so you know who you are. You're the 12 tribes dispersed. And then he says a word of greeting, which is rejoicing, connection, and he immediately shifts into his exhortation. Uh, there are a lot of topics. I mentioned that. It moves through these. Uh, it's almost hard to break them out. I've broken chapter 1 down into two segments, and I, I get that from a commentator that did a, a beautiful job with it, but it's verses 1 through 18. It's verses 19 through 27. It all centers around spiritual wholeness and introducing it. But even in that, every commentator makes an apology for making a distinction, saying, yeah, you can break this out almost any way you want because it's topic after topic. Now, they are linked. As I mentioned, Greek wordplay comes in. It's woven through them. He's in a play on the words trial and temptation, which have the same root word. He's in a play on uh, lacking and then somehow lacking another way, and he flips topic, but it has those words that tie together. Uh, there is a, a throwback to Old Testament wisdom literature and wisdom literature that weaves in the Jewish tradition on how trials and wisdom will be tied together. So we can find links, but that wasn't his purpose. And what people critique about James, oh, he just goes from this to that, he's jumping all over the place. No, no, he's not jumping all over the place. He's addressing issues in church. And what we have, to, we have to rebuild when we read it, which is part of reading Scripture, is the context. We recognize the issue by what he's talking about. They already knew the issues at hand. They both were on common ground. And so he's just running through what he knows needs to be addressed, and he actually sets it up. And so this introductory chapter is going to deal with the, the start is the pursuit of spiritual wholeness. And then as we look at the end of the chapter, it's going to be characteristics. And we make the split based on the words brother, because he addresses beloved brethren like he does at the beginning. But we're going to start off with this idea of the pursuit of spiritual wholeness. Uh, and we're looking at 2 through 18, but it all begins with teaching on, and, and you probably can guess it if you read it, trials. He starts with 
what is the framework or the canvas of everything that's taking place in James. It's this sense of suffering and struggles. It's not that he's trying to glorify struggles. He's speaking to reality. These churches, as a general principle, are suffering. He says in, in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That word, if it was translated today, is trials. It's not that we think of temptation as I'm being tempted to eat chocolate cake. That comes up in verse 13, and he plays on that. This is trials. This is suffering. So it's, 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 a, it's a trial that's in a poem, various trials. He's already telling you it's not just certain ones they know of, but you're, you're struggling here. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. And here, patience is steadfastness. And so we're going to be driven. Patience and steadfastness are similar words. One speaks to a characteristic, steadfastness. Patience is the endurance through something. And so they play off of each other. In Greek, same root word, uh, and it builds by the endings. And so I'm just going to hint at where there is a, an indication of having endurance or building a characteristic. And now I've mentioned uh, before many times, trials form a context for the whole letter. James is writing to churches in difficult situations. And so being a very direct, almost blunt man and being inspired by the Holy Spirit to do so, he doesn't avoid the elephant in the room. Trials are always an elephant in the room. Just think about how you deal with people who are suffering and how sometimes you walk around it in the most awkward ways because it is difficult. It's hard. It's hard to teach on God's grace and mercy and the blessings of the Christian life when someone is suffering. But it makes sense to address this elephant in the room up front and really throughout because God does care how you handle trials. And I want to remind you again, and I'm going to do this multiple times. Uh, I wrote it multiple times, which I always hate typing things over and over again, but it helps build that kind of framework. What are these trials? Poverty, persecution, pain, loneliness, fear, anxiety, depression. And I want you to get something that this is really important. He's talking about trials. He's not avoiding the elephant in the room. And he's telling them, God cares how you deal with trials. And that he's talking about having the patience to get through them because God wants you to realize something. James is writing to the church that as you walk through the trial, you are able and should be pursuing spiritual wholeness. And it can be achieved in the midst of trial. It's not just after the trial that you say, okay, now I can grow. But actually what he's pointing to is real growth that's going to take place. And so he says to them, and this is hard. I, I, I actually wrestle uh, with the, the trials and the attitude that ties with it because the idea of clenching and getting through it, mentally I can process around. That, that, it's not fun. It's, it's not enjoyable. But it's something I think maybe we can walk through. And I think that's a common human response, right? We think, this hurts. I will get through this and then I will be fine. I'll breathe and I'll go on. And that's kind of like patience, right? We get through something. But James is putting this whole other look on trial saying you're going to grow during it and through it. And then he says this weird statement, at least it should catch our attention. Count it all joy. Be joyful because of trials. 
And that word there is to show pure, intense, and wholehearted joy. Now, this was very helpful to me because when I read that and I read this idea, count it all joy, it's not that the only emotion you have is joy. That's the caution. This call and command to see trials, poverty, persecution, pain, illness, etc., as joy is not implying that joy is the exclusive response. Joy is not the only thing we feel with trials. It is something we're supposed to have as an attitude in a very intense, real, sincere way, but it does not say that you cannot feel and should not feel these other emotions. James is not negating the pain and sorrow and sadness that comes with suffering. And I find that very helpful because now I see that God is asking me to see what's going to be accomplished and see joy in that, but he's not asking us to shut off reality of pain and agony and suffering and bereavement and, and weeping. That's not there. He is, though, calling for genuine rejoicing. Because now, now the, the flip side is true. So now I know he says, count it all joy, count it sincere, intense joy, not to the exclusion of other emotions. No one here in facing an illness that is life-threatening says, well, yeah, it's just joy, though. That's all I feel. That, that fear doesn't weave its way in. That, that sorrow doesn't weave its way in. There's nobody here that lives with chronic pain that says, yep, but always makes me smile every time I feel it. That twinge in my back and all through my body and I can't stand up, I can't sit down. I'm just, I'm happy about it. It's not this, this, this idea that it's exclusive, but it is this idea of being genuine. So many of us read Count It All Joy, and so what do we do? We put on a joyful face with a strained fake smile, and we walk around. I'm happy about pain. That's not what this is. That's actually what he's against. That is not genuine rejoicing. It doesn't mean you'll always have a smile on your face. It's that you will count it intense joy, because with a call to being joyful is this call to understand why it's that way. We are rejoicing because we connect to how God will work this for his good, that he will develop our Christian character. Now, I mentioned this other caution, and I see this all the time. This is not a frantic looking for silver lining. We do this, right? We want the silver lining. Well, I've gone through this pain, and I can definitely help other people get through this pain. You might be able to do that. That's not what God's developing in you. That's not what James is talking about. The joy that you see is the fact that you know God is building you through this. You're not looking through and finding silver lining. We, we, that is grasping for a human straw to get through the problem. It is actually a trust that God will be working proven genuineness through us, that he is going to be building our character through this. That's why there's joy in trials, because God will work it for good, right? God worketh all things for good to those that love him, those that are called according to his purpose. It's trusting God, and it's trusting God to work the good. Silver lining is me finding good. And you know what's interesting about silver lining? Just that. It's just some silver lining. 
It's a thin thread of nothingness. It's usually shallow. It's not the good that God's working. Because along with being joyful, we're to be steadfast, patiently allowing the work to create in us the characteristic of proven genuineness. Patiently, and I put in parentheses, biblically, walk through so the trial works in us permanency. And by the way, use the word perfect, which means complete, which means whole. The trial we walk through and we count it joy because God is going to take this and he's going to take the mud that is my character and turn it into iron. That it's going to become a permanent fixture. We are lacking in nothing. We are manifesting spiritual wholeness, perfect and entire, wanting nothing. As Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 48, summarized, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, James is just recounting what Jesus taught. I wish Martin Luther would have taken more time to read the Sermon on the Mount when he read James because he might have put two and two together that this is not a book that's going against what Paul wrote about salvation on faith alone, but this is a pastor writing to a church saying, you should see your salvation and the fruit that's there, that God is working to build something and that he's not teaching anything outside of what Christ taught himself on the Sermon on the Mount. But this is not, and I want to remind us, determining whether we are saved or not. Instead, it is purifying the faith that already exists. Remember that with James. He is not having you work for your salvation. This is not a works-based salvation book, which is how sometimes people would read it. But instead, it's a confronting of the church and saying you must take action because of it. There should be a change, and there should be a purifying and a growth that's happening. Uh, Douglas Moo writes this, We can't avoid trials but we can make a decision to respond to them with confidence in God's providence and a determination to glorify God in the midst of those trials. And I'm coming all the way back to something I said before. You're not just getting through the trial, but God is allowing us and, and shaping us so that while we're in the midst of what we're going through, we actually honor him, glorify him, grow in him. Our lives are the beacon they're supposed to be. This is not done with a surface joy forced on our face or even our lips, but instead a genuine joy from the connection to the eternal fruit produced in us. A joy that may stand, and I want us to understand this, may stand in the midst of sadness and the suffering that trials bring, but it's a joy that is uncovered. And I hope that we get this when we see other brothers and sisters in Christ walking through a trial. They could be manifesting the all joy they're supposed to do, and it doesn't look like we expect. You want to know why? Because we're a world full of frauds and fakes and counterfeits. Because most of what we see in a moat is a front, a false front on a building. We need to be able to look deep and see real joy that's there in the midst of that sadness. And then we have to ask ourselves, when we're walking through trials, is this a fake joy of smile and lips, or is this real intense, wholehearted joy that's staring there? I put as a question, how are we handling trials today? And does that journey look like we're pursuing spiritual wholeness? Because how we walk through trials matters to God. And he's not asking us just to get through it, to grin and bear it, to grit and bear it. But instead he's saying, I want to see the pursuit of spiritual wholeness 
through this trial. Because there's also a beautiful truth vested in the command to count it joy during trials. And I repeat again, to redundancy, poverty, persecution, illness, anxiety, etc. And that is we are not put on the sidelines of the Christian battle because we're walking through a trial. We are instead in the midst of the battle, able to give God complete glory and be a beacon of him to the world around us. Not just because we endure them, but while we walk through them. Because the trial does not define our identity in Christ, but instead is just the atmosphere, the canvas from which our identity shines forth in this season of life. How in the world are people that are walking through what I call a death sentence of cancer or leukemia or, or whatever other illness they have, how in the world are people drawn to Christ from their experience? Is it because of the trial? No. It's because while in the midst of that trial, they are glorifying and honoring their Lord and Savior. And so you are not sidelined because of the trial. There's a beautiful, beautiful pictures of beauty in this that we, we understand in our life as we walk through these difficulties. And as we can see uh, with James, he skirts no issue when calling for complete, completion in Christ. He faces the hardship head on and shows how wholeness takes place through even hardship. Not by denying them, not by pretending in them or only holding our breath until they're done. He wants us to grow through them, to allow the work of God to unfold and doing so without condoning the trials nor those who perpetuate them. Notice that when you read James, never once does he say, count it all joy. So you thank those horrible persecutors of the church and say, thanks for putting me through trials because now I get to show joy in them. He never says that. There's never, uh, there's never what I write here, uh, there's never uh, him saying to, to us, hey, what is wrong is now right because God works his good through it. Nowhere in James does he make right what is being done wrong against the church. Not for the rich, not for the elite, not for the poor. For nobody in the church does he say, yeah, it's okay that you're doing wrong because God will work it for good. And, and we can rest in that. We trust God in that he doesn't condone wrong, that nothing is left unseen by God. We are torn up by injustice. It bothers us to the core of who we are. But when we rest in Christ, we recognize he never condones wrong, ever, ever, ever. He never twists it to be right. But it doesn't mean that we can't be used through what others have done wrong to bring glory to him and to shine a beacon of gospel truth to the world around us. So as is frequent in James, as I mentioned, he shifts topic with no seeming transition. Uh, and we're going to move right on to wisdom and faith. Uh, there is a light word connect in Greek, and there's a rich background of Jewish literature. And, and what that is, is in Jewish literature, you can read it in Proverbs, you're going to read it in, um, in literature in between the Testaments. You're going to see this kind of come out in James, and, and it's part of who he is. He's, he's a Jewish Christian, and so he's going to be building from these traditions, and a lot of the tradition in, in the writing you'll read in Proverbs, getting through trial takes God's wisdom. And so with that kind of links in mind, with James playing a wordplay to connect and then also understanding his background as a Jewish Christian that is coming out and he understands the Old Testament scriptures very well. He's going to build on this idea of trials and the need to have wisdom and faith in the pursuit of spiritual wholeness. I'm going to look at James 
uh, chapter 1, 5 through 8. And it says this, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not. And that's an amazing half sentence in the Bible right there. That literally we get to petition the almighty God and he liberally, he, he generously, and, and the word actually means wholeheartedly, gives us wisdom, sincerely, and he doesn't reproach, he doesn't castigate us for it. And it says, and it shall be given him, but let him ask in faith nothing wavering. For he that wavereth, wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. And, and don't think of the waves you ride your boogie board on that crash into the shore. Those have a certain motion that you can predict. It's out to sea where the water moves and you can't really tell and it bobbles down. In other words, it never has form or function or direction, it seems like. He says this, For let not that man think that he should receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man, and the word double-minded is a Greek word that James made up, by the way. It's coined in James. First time it shows up in any Greek literature is right here. He wrote that word, not in English, but in Greek, is unstable in all his ways. And here's the reality. We need God's wisdom. When James writes, if any of us lack wisdom, it implies that we do lack wisdom. So off the bat, right away, when it comes to wisdom and faith, and I don't even have this as a note, there's a realization that we need wisdom. There's an understanding that as believers, we need God's wisdom. And it is readily available to us. God is not stingy with his wisdom or distant. What are all the jokes about, right? You climb a steep mountain to find a cave with an old man with a long beard. You ask a profound question. He gives a ridiculously simple answer so you can go back down the mountain and process his amazing wisdom. And to get to that wisdom, what do you have to do? Climb the big mountain. Talk to the crazy wizard man. Come down and figure out what he said. And that implication of wisdom, we have this idea of how inaccessible it is. Ah, I've reached this, this rooftop. And you can see it even in, in other religions where they place their temples and their things and where their leading people live. And it's this removed kind of idea. That's not who God is. Instead, he is accessible. And as I mentioned, that should overwhelm and shock us. The reality that the Almighty has made himself accessible to frail humanity. That what James writes is that we're his children, that we approach the Almighty, omniscient God, and that he's not sitting there hiding in a cave on the top of a mountain with a weird beard, but instead he's a God who is accessible to us, to answer us, and he's desiring to impart his wisdom, yet we must be asking you got to be asking. Our missing wisdom is not due to its unavailability. It is because we do not pursue it. What you don't know about God that is knowable is not known because you don't pursue it. It's not God's fault. God is generous in giving wisdom. He gives his wisdom, and the idea of generous, the word there in Greek means singleness of heart. 
And what does that imply? And that's why generous is used in English, because we're trying to drive to something. Because the Greek words, there's rarely, if you ever study language or know another language, you know there's oftentimes not a direct translation for something that, that goes. with the concept is deeper sometimes than the other word is. So generous is, is a good word. Because singleness of purpose, when someone gives generously, they give with no strings attached. So part of singleness of heart means that God gives his wisdom without strings attached. It's unconditionally given. It's not with a catch or a barter. I'll give you wisdom, but now you need to bring me three meals. I'll give you wisdom, but you have to now suffer for 10 years in Africa. That's not how God works with his wisdom. And then on top of that, God is kind in giving wisdom without reproach. How often do we dole out advice with a reprimand to the person needing it? And if you're a parent of a teenager, you have doled out advice with a reprimand for the person receiving it. And if you say you haven't, I don't believe you, all right? Because you've told them, you should know better. And you tell them what they should do, but you make sure that you upbraid them quite a bit about the need for advice. We lord it over them. Not so with God. We can approach for wisdom in any circumstance, even repeated circumstances. God is not going to turn to us. I already told you once how to do that. And you should have listened. My boys struggle with spreading butter or peanut butter like a normal human being. It's the bane of my existence. I did wood carving in college, not college, high school. I've handled a knife. Now, I've also carved my hands up too, but either way, I could handle a knife somewhat. And I watched them work the knife, and, and I, I said, you guys are going to become a sermon illustration if you don't watch out, you know. Look at your sister, you know. Sisters, actually, the little, my little daughter. It's like they, they can grab the utensil, and they're human. And then the boys are like T-Rexes, and they're just stabbing at peanut butter, and I'm like... I almost want two separate peanut butters, one for the normal ones of the family and one for the boys to just kill it every time they go in. And I don't know how many times I upbraid them. I have showed you how to spread peanut butter on a piece of toast. And being a male, I'm like, why isn't my wife engaging here and teaching them how to spread? We're doing peanut butter spreading lessons until you get it. In other words, we tend to upbraid or lord or, or come after them because they should know better. That's not God. Yet God does command in the context of his singleness, his generosity, his non-strings attached. He does command that our requests follow his generosity. And then I'm going to go back. Singleness of heart. We must be consistent. We need to be asking, but we need to be consistent. And I put in parentheses, in heart. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. As one writer remarks, God gives with singleness of intent. We must ask with singleness of of intent. And before I miss it, I want to say what it means to ask with singleness of intent. Singleness of intent is that you're asking God, not asking God and then dumping down to human resources into what you have control in and what you can do and maybe what that person can do for you. Or That's not singleness of intent. 
That is, I'm going to do whatever I want, and I'm going to switch from human resource, and maybe Chief God will bail me out, and then I'll dive back to human resources. And lack of singleness of intent is our political leaders praying on the steps after 9-11. That's not singleness. They're just going to pray to God because they feel desperate in a moment, and they're going to bounce back to all their humanistic ways immediately thereafter. God asks that we are consistent in heart. We are to ask believing in God and who he is and not be wavering and inconsistent in our attitude toward God. Now, this is not implying that you never have a doubt. That sometimes things crop up, but, but the idea is consistency. Paul states that Abraham never wavered through unbelief in God's promise. Yet when you read the Old Testament, what did he do when God promised a son? What are one of his reactions? Laughter. Hedging his bets. And so it's not... It's not that, oh, I had a doubt, boom, there I'm a wavering man. The, the, the implication and, and knowledge we have is we live in a sinful world and we're sinful beings. That doubt will crop up. But what is, what is God saying? Have consistency in your faith. What does Abraham have? Consistency in his faith in God. Doubts may arise, but that shouldn't define us. Our life should be consistent in heart, not like the ever-shifting swells in the ocean. James then expands on the idea in verse 7 and 8 because he builds. Momentum is building here. So it sounds like he's repeating, but now he's really pulling out this person who is wavering. And he says this, for he says, For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. That's the inconsistent man. And by man, the word is driving to human, the person that's there. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And here he gives the reality of insincerity, of disloyalty and requesting from God. James is making clear that someone jumping back and forth between human resources and wisdom and heavenly resources and wisdom divine should expect no help from God. We are not to be double-minded, which, again, as I mentioned, was a word coined by James, and the Greek meaning literally is double-souled. And the implication is this, and it's not new. James coins the word, new word, Greek. Not a new concept, runs all the way through the Old Testament. In Psalm, we read about a person with deception in their hearts. Hosea talks about um, a deceitful or divided heart. It is a concept that fills the Old Testament and all of Scripture. Uh, so though he's making a new word in Greek, it is an old concept. Who else zeroed in on this concept? Jesus Christ, Deuteronomy 6, 5. It calls us to love the Lord your God with what? What's the word that's key that we kind of ignore? Because we always get into all the things. Heart, soul, mind, strength. We miss the, the key word. What is it? All. And that word all is whole. Love the Lord your God with all of you. Be spiritually whole. There has never been in Scripture a tolerance for partial commitment, partial love, partial effort, or partial faith. Our loyalties are never split. We do not weigh the resources and the option, seeing what we prefer, hedging our bets with God. We are not to be double-souled people. There is to be no basic division in the soul that leads to thinking, speaking, acting, in any way that contradicts one's claim to belong to God. So when he says, ask for wisdom, but ask in faith, we immediately go to those doubts that pop in our minds sometimes. And what he is driving to is consistency of heart. Are we wholly committed to God? But how do you describe yourself? 
Are we behaving in a double-souled manner? Is there a division that ultimately betrays your, your trust in God or shows that you are distrustful of God? And when you distrust God, you are questioning God. You are saying to God, I don't believe what you said about yourself. You won't come through. I have a statement I always say, you can always ask God questions, but you should never question God. Because you can ask questions, but when you go to question God, you are now engaging in doubt of who God is. God has revealed himself, and he's told us who he is. And when we waver and we're not, and I'm saying that the doubt that crops up just because we're human, but we show that inconsistency, we're telling God, you lied about who you are. And that's why James says, there's no help coming there. If you look at people, there's times they become so bitter that they won't cry out to God. They won't seek his help. And that's an outcome of this wavering person. Well, and I have to see what time I am. Well, I'm getting close to the end. So a couple more minutes. James now turns uh, in this last, and we'll run through this one quickly. And I already knew from the get-go I would never get through to 18. Um, and so we'll work as hard and fast as we can. But we'll, we'll get through chapter 1 and work through the components. But uh, James now turns in the next verses to the economic situation resident in the churches and touches on one of the key trials, which is poverty. You can't run from that. Uh, when you look at these churches, poverty was a defining feature. Part of that was because the people in church were being persecuted for being believers. And so they may have been successful business owners, and now people won't come to them. Or they got mis, uh, misused in a court system. So we think we're the only ones going to court and getting bad readings or bad, uh, bad outcomes. But they were facing this. And so they were oftentimes put in a, in a situation where there was a lot of poverty. <clears throat> and then in the same context... He exposes the pitfalls of pride. I put poor and rich. There's a lot of discussion. Are the rich people evil? Are they unbelievers? And, and there's, there's arguments both sides. Uh, I fall on the side of those who see the rich in the church, believers, because he's writing to the churches dispersed. And so I think that they're, they're right in seeing them as believers in the church. And so what he's going to deal with, he's going to deal with the poverty that that erodes at the soul of people sometimes. It erodes at who they are. But he deals with the same issue with the rich. He says the rich trust in their riches and the poor think their identity is the lack of riches. And you realize that they're worshiping the same thing when that happens. And so he addresses them both from two different angles, but it's really the same concept. In the pursuit of spiritual wholeness, James has something to say to the rich and the poor. <coughs> Let the brother of low degree... Rejoice in that he is exalted. Let the one that's in poverty stricken, who thinks he has nothing and is nothing and is belittled by society, which maybe he was, let him realize that he's exalted. Let him see where he is in the eyes of Christ. But the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. And, and, the, and the, the topic switches. The poor are exalted in their identity in Christ, and the rich are reminded that their identity is in Christ and not in all these other things that the world values. So recognize the low. Recognize as the flower of the grass they'll pass away, for the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, <coughs> and the flower thereof faileth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. And, and what he's saying is not saying terrible, wicked, rich people. 
it's reminding the wealthy believers that that wealth is, is transient, that that wealth is temporal, that wealth can burn up like this in the eyes of eternity. Here as the base is the danger of finding identity, usefulness, and worth in the material components of this world. And both the poor and the rich can do it. When the poor evaluates their life in the context of what they have, they are buying into the standard that the world has set. I don't have money, so I don't have worth. I can't do this. Whether that's a victim mentality, whether that's a real feeling of lessness, they have bought the identity that the world gives us, and the world always evaluates on material wealth. The rich can fall into the same trap the other way. I have stuff. I'm smart. I'm brilliant. I'm lucky, but really, I'm really good at what I do. I have, and so therefore, I must be special beyond someone else. And he's saying, that fries up like grass. That's gone in a second. That's, and here's the point. When you see both of them as believers, you recognize that he's trying to change their focus because as he's talking about spiritual wholeness, all your heart, all your strength, all your mind, all everything for God, then he's dealing right here while diving into one of the trials of poverty, because look, it's hard to not have, right? If I have to pick between poor or rich, which one do you pick? I'm always picking that one, because I'd rather eat than not eat. I'd rather have clothes than not clothes. I'd always rather take what would be easier. But there's pitfalls that come there, and he's dealing with this greatest of temptation that we actually encounter to live a divided life or to have a divided soul when we attempt to serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. And really, you can't serve God and temporal things. You can't make temporal things your standard and God your standard. It doesn't work. It, it ties to a very famous passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might, let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glorieth glory in this that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And so in the context of one's socioeconomic status, some temporally more difficult, more of a trial, yet all of them in some stage, some temptation, he's saying to the poor and the rich, be identified in Christ. The point is to find ultimate significance in your spiritual identity. Be careful. And I think it's masterfully done because we just went from trial to needing wisdom in trial and dealing with life to one of the trials, but the lesson that comes out of it, because it's very easy. I travel with people in the mission field. And they fly to Nicaragua, Central America, second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere. And you know what they see when you go to Nicaragua, if you're second poorest nation in the Western Hemisphere? You see what kind of people? Poor people. You know what people do when they see poor people at church? They think they're spiritual. And then you get to know them. And you realize they worship money just like this one does. Because the temptation falls for both. And what does James do? Don't find your significance in what you don't have or do have. Find your identity in Christ. 
As one writer notes, money and the things that money can buy, James well knows, are tremendously powerful lures to compromise one's wholehearted commitment to the Lord. Recognize that, whether poor or rich, either one, that temporal things and the things that money can buy are a tremendously powerful bait, a lure to compromise one's wholehearted commitment to the Lord. As Jesus made clear in Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve both God and money. So where does your identity rest? And then have you been lured into temporal things? Have you allowed the world to apply its worth meter to you? How good are you? What is your bank account? What's your net worth? How smart were you in your field? Are you the genius in research and solved the problem of cancer? Are you the best business person in the world? Are you the smartest engineer and made the biggest bridge? World's meter, always put up there. And it doesn't mean as believers we don't do our work with excellence, that success is a problem. But when it becomes your God, it is. And then most Christians say, it's not my God. And God says, yes, it is. Because you worship that, and that's your identity. And that's the standard by which you measure yourself. Have you valued yourself because of your wealth? And I'll flip that question around. Have you devalued yourself because of your lack of wealth? Because both of them are the same lure that you're falling into to be tempted to not be wholly committed to the Lord. And so he says, be warned, temporal things fade like grass. They'll fade while you're pursuing them. And that's the point. He's not saying every rich person is going to die counting their money. He's saying that in their pursuit, which seems so stable and so significant, it fade away. Luke talks about the rich man that builds the barns and is going to take his barns down and build bigger barns. And God says, you fool, tonight your, your heart, your soul is required of you. We don't control that. James will talk about not controlling tomorrow uh, through the book. But here is a hint of it. And I have more written, but we have no time for that. So um, I'd hope to get to 12, but uh, I'll get that the next time I teach, and then we'll work our way through uh, chapter 1. What we're seeing in 1 through 18 is the pursuit of, um, the pursuit of spiritual wholeness. And then as I mentioned, 19 through 27 are the characteristics of spiritual wholeness. And then the rest of the book expands on those as this is an introductory chapter. But again, we hold that, we hold that structure very loosely because James moves when I say at will as his Holy Spirit moves him as he addresses the issues at hand. <laughs>